The words that I'd like to direct your attention to this morning found in the book of Acts. We'll be looking at the last part of Acts 15 and the first part of chapter 16. Begin reading in Acts 15, 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and who had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. For them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Please pray with me once again as we look at God's Word together. Lord, we just again plead for grace that you would use your Word to feed us, to convict us, to strengthen us, to help us. Lord, for we need help. And we know that that the help that you provide is perfect. And so, renew our minds. Set our our affections on those things which are truly holy and and good. Lord, continue to to strengthen our uh, vigilance, our alertness to truth, so that we would not be deceived. Lord, help us to see uh, if there's patterns in our life that we need to, to put to death, that we need to to turn from or things that we need to begin doing so that we might walk in a manner more pleasing to you. But teach us, Lord, even as we look at your word this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. On June 16th, 1858, delegates met in Springfield, Illinois, a thousand delegates, to hear the speech of the Republican candidate for state senator, a man by the name of Abraham Lincoln, and he was running against the Democratic candidate who was named Stephen Douglas. And early in that candidacy speech, Lincoln asserted this, we are now far into the fifth year since a policy was initiated with an avowed object and confident promise of putting an end to slavery agitation. (laughs) 
under the operation of that policy, that agitation has not only not ceased, but is constantly augmented. In my opinion, it will not cease until a crisis shall have been reached and passed. A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half-slave and half-free. And these words would come back to haunt Lincoln. First of all, because on the basis of his bluntness, his honesty, his directness, people thought he was too bold. And it probably cost him this election for the state senate. Secondly, we come back to haunt him because years later, right after Lincoln would be elected president, this country was catapulted into a civil war. And that civil war dominated Lincoln's presidency. And so Lincoln's famous declaration that a house divided cannot stand was, of course, true. But you might as well also know, you might also know that those words were taken from the Gospel of Matthew. They're words of our Lord Himself. And division is one of the greatest threats that has faced the church from its beginning. In fact, we saw this early on in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 6, when a, a, a near division was caused because some of the widows, the Hellenistic widows, were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And this is what led to the establishment of deacons. Division emerged once again in the last chapters, chapter 15, because of the divisive doctrine of the Judaizers who insisted that the Gentiles could not be saved unless they became Jews first and were circumcised. And a division attacks the church once again here at the end of chapter 15 in the relationship of Barnabas and Paul. Arguably the two most influential leaders of the Christian church at that time. Divisiveness is a common attack used by Satan to threaten the church. When Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians, while they were in the midst of this conflict because of the false teaching of the Judaizers, he warned them to be aware of the division that these teachers would cause. And remarkably, he, he, he might recall in chapter 5 of that book, he says, walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. And then he lists the fruit of the flesh, the evidence that one is walking in the flesh. And three or at least five of those evidences, those fruits of the flesh, have to do with divisiveness. And three are explicit. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. That's remarkable. You want to know what an unbeliever looks like? They're divisive. And so, of course, Satan seeks to divide the church. Division was Paul's primary concern with the church of Corinth. He said in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ... That all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. In fact, that's why Paul tells Titus, if anybody amongst you stirs up division, have nothing more to do with them. 
knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So division is not a light thing. It is one of the primary manifestations of corruption in the work of Satan. But of course, the threat of divisions has continued within the church up to the present day. It's, it's manifested in the countless number of de- denominations that have developed over the years. And it's seen in just the church splits that happen time and time again, even in our own country. Not to mention just the divisions and broken relationships that happen within families through divorce. Or even just the, the breakdown of trust within family members. And you can see division happening in one's posture towards others. The question is, are you moving away from another person? Or are you moving towards that person? When you feel yourself being pulled away, there's division taking place. So just like with a, with a piece of paper, right? Just starts to fall apart. Pulling away from each other just is what causes the divide. It's not a small thing. And often what leads us into division is a self-righteousness or self-concern. And yet we might be causing permanent destruction without any clue except that we're hurting or we're scared. The Apostle James tells us what causes divisions in relationships and churches. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So divisions are not only devastating, but even as Abraham Lincoln noticed, they're deadly. And arguably the most shocking division that takes place in the early church is the one that's described here at the end of Acts 15. And the division that takes place between two companions, two comrades who had suffered together in the gospel, Paul and Barnabas. Let's look first of all at the, that division. It's described in verses 36 to 41. Beginning verse 36, it says, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return. Let's visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord, and see how they are. Now, what's remarkable is you'll notice that the division between Paul and Barnabas starts at a point of unity. Both Paul and Barnabas agree that they should return to the churches that they once established on their previous missionary journey. And they, they wanted to check in on them and to see, to make sure that they're continuing in the gospel. They're growing in faith and trust in Christ. Right? Notice the, the phrase. Their purpose is, and to see how they are. So both deeply cared about the spiritual health of these churches, about the individual souls. They wanted to make sure they were stable and strong. Again, it just shows just how deeply interested they were in these people. They weren't 
trying, when on their missionary trip, they weren't just trying to expand their influence, to gain popularity, to make a name for themselves. They cared about their souls to the extent that they're going to go back into the same towns, the same cities where Paul was stoned and where they had been beaten. They wanted to see them in person because they deeply cared about them. This is actually made very clear in the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 4, if you would turn with me there. This, this, this chapter really shows the concern that Paul had for these people. He tells them himself, I'll begin reading in chapter 4 verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also became as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a body ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn and despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that they may make that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. And Paul is deeply concerned. He's deeply animated, and he shows this not only in writing the letter, but even as we see here, he and Barnabas decide that they should go back to check on these people. Because what if the letter wasn't enough? What if they received the letter, but there was still enough of a wormwood kind of, or wormtum kind of influence that would lead them astray? Paul cared more about the state of these people's souls in his own life. In fact, he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. I endure everything for them. He tells the Philippians, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad. And I rejoice with you all. He tells the Corinthians, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Here also Paul's heart for the Colossian Christians. Colossians chapter 2. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And for those at Laodicea and for all who have seen me, not seen me face to face. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach, this, to reach the riches of full assurance and of understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. I mean, that, you see here just the heart of a, of a true shepherd for the sheep. That they're wholly concerned with the interests of the people that they have served. And I can testify to you, in all honesty... This is how your leaders care for you. Ben and Mark and Peter. And I say that because 
you don't get to see what I see in the elder meetings. The tears that are shed on your behalf, the, the anguish that they express over the sufferings that you're going through or even the sins that you're struggling with. And you don't get to see their eagerness to sacrifice for your best interests. Because you don't get to see it, that's what I'm telling you. You will be hard-pressed to find such men that genuinely care for your souls anywhere. And if this is how Christ's under-shepherds care for the sheep, how much, much more confident can you be in our great shepherd himself? If this is how men care for your souls, how much more does your Savior care for your soul? Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And he said, greater love hath no man than he who lays down his life for his friend. That's the kind of love that that Christ has for you right now. And always, if you're in him. As we sang earlier, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. So Paul and Barnabas deeply care for the sheep just as Christ cares for His sheep. In fact, their love for them is is an expression of Christ's love. And yet it's, it's remarkable that this is what prompts the initial division that takes place. In verse 37, we're told that that the cause underlying this was the fact that they had previously taken Mark along with them, and Barnabas, his cousin, thought that they should do so again. But Paul was adamantly opposed to this. And the reason that's given is because Mark deserted them on the previous missionary journey. It says, He kept insisting that they wouldn't take him. So the question emerges, well, who was right in this division? Well, it's hard to be definitive because we weren't there. We didn't hear the specific words that were shared, the tone of voice, the the argument, the reasoning fully. So we can't know for certain, but it's it's a worthwhile question. I think it deserves at least an attempted answer. And there are three things that came to my mind that I think we should consider. And the first is that we need to remember that Paul was the one who had been officially appointed by Christ as the apostle to the Gentiles. Christ had spoken to him and called him to this work. Now, Barnabas was an apostle in the sense that he came alongside Paul and he went with Paul in his missionary journeys, but he wasn't the one appointed to be the missionary, ultimately, but to serve alongside Paul. Christ was the one, Christ had only officially appointed, directly appointed Paul. So he was really the leader. Secondly, although Barnabas and Mark uh, depart for Cyprus on their own missionary trip after this, the text states that only Paul and Silas were commissioned by the church at Antioch to go. 
Now, I could somewhat of an argument from silence, but it's remarkable that the text says the church commissioned uh, Paul and Silas to go, but, not, but it was Barnabas and Mark who kind of went off on their own to Cyprus. So these truths suggest Barnabas should have bowed his will to Paul's leadership. However, I think Barnabas was onto something in wanting to, to seek to restore Mark's credibility as a man of God. Because later on, Mark did prove himself to be a very faithful disciple. He was even commissioned by the Holy Spirit to write one of the four Gospels about Christ's life and ministry. So, certainly the Lord had big plans for Mark. Which brings up this question. How should one handle the failure of others? When a person quits, when they give up, when they throw in the towel, and then later on they realize, I was a fool. What should we do when one starts well, but in the face of fear, difficulty crumbles and abandons you? Well, I think our Lord gives a good example in his treatment of the leader of the disciples. Right? As you know, Peter, on that night when Christ was betrayed, adamantly asserted that he would never deny Christ. Like he said, even though they all fall away, I will not. And then Jesus says, truly I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter then replied, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. But then hours later... It says he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you will speak. And then the rooster crowed three times. And then, of course, in John 21, remember that the Lord comes to Peter and he asks him three times if he loves him. In order to give Peter the chance to say, to make up for those three denials. And to affirm that he, that he does love the Lord. But not only that, after Peter in his third time, he says, Lord, you know that I love you. Christ says this. Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So what he was telling Peter is, he was saying, Peter, I know you love me. In fact, I know you love me so much that one day you will die because you will not deny me. In fact, you'll die in the same manner that I died through crucifixion. But he says, but for now, feed my sheep. Again, we see the heart for, for Christ and his sheep here, the great shepherd. So I bring that up in that, that example because I believe Barnabas was right in wanting to restore the credibility of Mark and to give him another chance. But I also believe Paul the Apostle had the right to decide who he should take on that missionary journey. And frankly, Mark had disqualified himself. Now, 
There could have been other ways to restore Mark's credibility. That's probably what should have happened, is they could have restored it without that division taking place. But it did happen. And the result was a very painful split occurred. Again, Barnabas had been a major leader in the church ever since Pentecost. And he was the one who had stuck by Paul's side through all of his trials. In fact, remember, he was the one that first introduced Paul to the apostles in Jerusalem who were terrified of him. In fact, you might recall, it was Barnabas who invited Paul once again to join him in Antioch. But after this split, Barnabas is not heard from again in the book of Acts. Paul does speak of him positively once again in, in 1 Corinthians 9.6. Even more remarkably, Paul speaks very highly of Mark in Colossians 4.10, 2 Timothy 4.11. Uh, most notably there in 2 Timothy 4, he says, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for the ministry. Paul is asking Timothy to go and get Mark in his final days in prison because he sees great value in Mark. So Mark was a good guy. But just what, this, according to Paul, this wasn't the right time for him to join them on this difficult journey. Paul commends him as well in Philippians chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. So Barnabas and Paul parted in anger, but also in sorrow. Again, Paul owed more to Barnabas than any other man. And Barnabas was, was leaving, arguably, the, the, aside from Christ, the greatest man who's ever lived. But we should note that the work of ministry continues. And God continues to work through this division even. Barnabas, still wanting to see the church they had planted continue to grow, continue to be strengthened and edified, takes Mark with them, and they go to Cyprus. And then Paul, who still wants to go to Galatia, asked Silas to come with him. Now Silas was the one who had come up from Jerusalem. Uh, Silas is actually short for the, word, for the name Silvanus, and that's often how he's referred to in the Scriptures in some of Paul's letters. First uh, Thessalonians 1, 2 Thessalonians refers to him this way, 2 Corinthians. Uh, also Peter calls him Silvanus. So the two of them decide to go uh, into Galatia, not by the sea route, which they had taken before, but actually up through the mountains. Here's a map. You can see that in the purple region, Cilicia, they go up through Syria and Cilicia and then cross through uh, the Taurus Mountains there into Galatia, which is that green region on the map. That's the cities of Lystra and Derbe that are located there. Now, you might recall that this is the same area that Paul had previously served in in, in Acts chapter 9. Remember when he was, he was asked by the disciples to flee Jerusalem because his life was in danger. And so he leaves Jerusalem in Acts 9 and goes and serves on his own up in the area of Syria and Cilicia. So he's probably familiar with this region and knew many of the Christians there. So as he passed through the region... It says he, he strengthened the churches. This brings us to chapter 16, where after the significant loss of Barnabas as a companion, Luke immediately shows how 
God not only uh, filled the void with the addition of Silas, but he also adds to the team another young man named Timothy. Now, verse 1 tells us that Paul and Silas travel to Derby and Lystra, and they meet Timothy. Now, we're not told his age. We're told he's a young man. Most scholars believe he was probably a, a late teenager or in his early 20s, which would mean that when Paul was there before and he had been stoned in Lystra, it's quite possible that, that Timothy was a, was a boy at the time and witnessed it. According to 2 Timothy 1, he was raised by his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice, who were both Christians. We're told really nothing of his father except that he was a Greek, which is why he hadn't been circumcised yet. And really the, fa- the, the silence surrounding his father suggests that uh, his father had left him years before, or maybe he had died. But despite the vacuous presence of a, a father to lead him in the scriptures, his mother and grandmother were clearly faithful in bringing him up, both in the fear of the Lord and in his understanding of the scripture. It says in Second Timothy chapter 3, Paul reminds Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's remarkable. But what's even more remarkable is the level of instruction was so strong, so influential in Timothy's life, that when Paul comes upon him as a teenager, he recognizes this is the man that he wants to accompany him throughout the rest of the missionary journey. And really, Timothy accompanies him almost the rest of his life. So even as a very young man, he was truly remarkable. He's not only, Paul's not only impressed by his maturity and faithfulness, but he's compelled to bring him along. And we know that Paul has high standards for his companions when he, when he does his missionary journeys because he wouldn't take Mark, even at the cost of losing Barnabas. And yet Timothy, he recognizes is already there. So the young man, truly remarkable. And, and Paul's confidence in Timothy was not misplaced. When Paul needed to send someone in his place, he sent Timothy. Even into very difficult situations. When, when uh, Paul was first, first entrusted Timothy with a, a special commission to Thessalonica, Timothy went and, and had an effective Influence on the, the persecuted Christians there. In 1 Corinthians 4.17, it says, Timothy was the man that Paul sent to be the one to challenge those Corinthians who were struggling with division and pride and boasting. And he sent Timothy to deal with that church full of all sorts of corruption, to deal with the false teachers there as well. He did the same thing. Uh, with Ephesus, Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus to deal with the false teachers and to appoint elders. The young man Timothy is the one he put in charge to discern who's the right men that we should put in, tra- in charge of this, this major church in the, in the town of Ephesus. And so Paul had immense confidence in him. And even Hebrews 13.23 points out that Timothy was eventually imprisoned for his faith. He's probably imprisoned other times, but it's explicit there. 
Consider also how Paul speaks of Timothy in his letters. He says this in Philippians chapter 2. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. And I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will also come. You know Timothy's proven worth. So even the Philippians knew of his worth. And of course in 2 Timothy 3, as we read earlier, he reminds Timothy, You have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. My faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. Paul says, you have followed me in those things, in those towns. That's exactly where Paul and Timothy are about to go. Timothy was the real deal. And again, this character was evident in Timothy when Paul first meets him as a young man. And where did such character come from? It came from his grandmother Lois and most, most of all from his mother Eunice. And so parents, especially mothers and grandmothers, don't underestimate the impact that you can have on your kids. Timothy's mother and grandmother's devotion to instructing him was enough to prepare Timothy to be the right-hand man of the Apostle Paul in his youth. And it was manifested also in his, his willingness to be circumcised as an adult. <laughs> That's a tough thing to ask a grown man. But Timothy was willing to do that for the sake of the gospel. It's important to recognize that Timothy was not asked to be circumcised because he needed to be circumcised for the sake of salvation. And that's, that was very clearly uh, manifested in the last chapter. But also, Paul notes that as they went from uh, the, in the synagogues and from town to town, that they brought with them the letter that announced that Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. And so... Paul was not asking Timothy to be circumcised in order to conform to the Judaizers' expectations. So why did Timothy get circumcised? It's because he had a Greek father, but he was also half Jewish. And he could have, he could teach, therefore, in the synagogues. But in order to teach in the synagogues, he had to be circumcised. So he could be used as an evangelist. To reach these people. And it's really a manifestation of the principle that Paul illustrates for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. That Christians, in our desire to see the lost come to a true knowledge of salvation, we, we are willing to give up our rights. Give up our comforts. Give up our paychecks. Because we, we care so much about the souls of lost individuals. In 1 Corinthians 9, it says this, beginning in verse 19. In fact, go ahead and read with me. 1 
flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. See this for yourself. Because this is the heart we should all have. 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 19. He says, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law. That I might win those who are under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Paul's point isn't that in order to reach the world, you've got to become like the world. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying instead, in order to reach those who are enslaved by the world, you, you begin to think, what is it that I need to give up in order to reach them? What do I need to sacrifice to show that I genuinely care for their souls? And when people see that you're willing to make great sacrifices, they'll be more open to hearing what you have to say. And then verse 5 tells us the impact of their ministry. Notice this. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. It was fruitful. So despite this awful division that took place between Paul and Barnabas, it's not the end of the story. It's grievous. It's painful. It probably shouldn't have happened. And yet God continued to work through His disciples. It doesn't mean that the division wasn't damaging, but it does tell us that it wasn't definitive. Christ will continue His work through those who are still seeking and striving to be faithful to Him. And we can take courage in that. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that You would continue to work through us despite our failures despite our mistakes. And Lord, that you would continue to restore us to greater faithfulness so that you would use this church to exalt your name here in Forest Grove and even to have an influence upon the world through the work of missionaries. Lord, we want to be a faithful church in this generation. We don't want to waste our lives and striving after the flesh, striving after vanity and the things that don't matter. Lord, we don't want to look back on our life and even if we've accumulated riches and fame and popularity to think that it was only good for this life. Lord, fix in us convictions so that we would be faithful Christians, a faithful church in this generation. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.